But let me just pose that question for you. What, what are the top three things? Maybe the first one is first impressions. You're asking, could I find the building? Could I find a place to park? I get out of my car, come to the building. Did anybody greet me today? Or is there clear signage to show me where I need to go? Could I find the bathrooms, the restrooms, and are they clean? I'm sure you were probably thinking through that. What, what type of, uh, did they take care of the facility here? What, what, about, what about the coffee? Does the, does the coffee taste good? I mean, these are all first impressions within like the first few minutes of you stepping on our campus here at Spring Step. Second one, children's ministry. You've come today and you've brought kids. And, and you're wondering, hey, I know, I know for many of you, you didn't come with kids today. One day this will be a question you'll be asking, hey, do you provide anything for kids? Is it safe? Is it secure? Is it well-maintained? Is it clean? Does it smell good? Or does it smell like rotten diapers in there? These are all things, whether you realize it or not, that, that you're processing. But let's real, let's get to the big deal. Really, the, what you're evaluating when you come to church is the worship. It's the worship, right? I mean, is there a good worship leader? Is he experienced? Can he lead me into the presence of God? What about the band? I mean, do they have an organ or do they have a band? Guitar? Drums? I mean, is, can the dude on the drums really just, just knock it out? I'm kind of partial here because I'm in the band, and I think our band does a great job. But we're asking these questions. The music. Did they do the, the latest and greatest praise and worship songs? Did they do too many hymns? Did they do them fast enough? Were they slow enough? Were they too loud? Were they too soft? The worship. Let me pose this question for you. What hinders or enhances your worship on Sunday? Is it something totally external to you? Because all of these things that I've just described about the worship, you have no control over. So if the band blows it, does that ruin your worship? I mean, have you ever left some, a church or, you know, maybe you leave today and say, I just, I just can't worship there. What do you think of when you think of worship? Is it possible that the greatest thing hindering your worship today is not something up here on the stage, but something inside of you? Now, here's where we're headed. We're going to go to Romans 12 today. And in Romans 12, in the, in the book of Romans, Paul is going to turn and flip upside down for many of us what we think of when we think of worship. And here's the point. Here's the main truth Paul's getting us at today is that all of life is worship and to be lived in response to the gospel. All of life is worship and to be lived in response to the gospel. So as we go to Romans 12, we're going to see pretty radical how Paul holds up this idea of worship and transform our thoughts. So let me, let me read for this and let me encourage you to follow along. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This morning, we're going to look at gospel-driven worship, both individual and corporate. And I want to give you three truths here from Romans 12 that I believe Paul's wanting us to get at, to embrace, to learn as we think rightly about worship. And the first one is this. Worship is a response to the gospel. Now look here with me in Romans 12. I mean, I really encourage you to follow along in the text with me. We see at the beginning of verse 1, he says, this is your spiritual worship. So Paul has given us a clue here that what he's talking about is worship. Now we're going to ask a couple of questions. What is worship? And then why should I worship? Well, the what, he tells us there in verse 1. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is the what of worship. What is your spiritual worship? It's presenting your body as a spiritual sacrifice. And hey, we're going to talk about that in a second. We're going there. But first, I want to pose a question for you. Not just what should we be doing, but why? And you know, the good news is Paul answers that question for us. Let me just ask you, why do you worship? Why should we worship? Do we, do we worship to earn God's acceptance? Do we worship to earn God's favor and God's approval of us? Just think about Paul for a second. What do we know about Paul? Paul was a Jew, right? Paul was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He says concerning his Pharisee and concerning the law, he was blameless. Now, what do we know about pharisaical worship? You remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew? Look at this. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. He said, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. I'll tell you this. One thing that Paul wanted to make sure, his desire was not to produce at the church of Rome a bunch of pharisaical worshipers who worshiped God in vain. And you know, he knew exactly what this was like. He knew what it was like to worship God in vain. So what was the problem with the Pharisees? They looked great on the outside. They sang. They taught the scriptures, they prayed, but yet it says their heart was far from them. We're already getting a clue here, right? What is the greatest hindrance to their worship? Is it something external or internal? We're starting to see it's something that's going on on the inside. And so what Paul does, coming back to Romans 12, before he tells you the what of worship, how does he begin verse 1? He says this in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. When you, see, when you see the word therefore in Scripture, 
This is one of the clues in Scripture that's, that's reminding you, hey, what I'm about to tell you is based on what I've just told you. Now, if we would have been preaching through the, the book of Romans, it would have been pretty clear what Paul had been doing. So here's what I'm going to do for a second. I'm going to just take us back in time in Romans. Because I want us to see the therefore. What's Paul saying when he says therefore and all of this that's going to lead up to why you should worship? So turn with me real quick. In, in Romans, just go back to chapter 1. It's going to be real easy. We're just going to stay in Romans today. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start here in verse 15. In Romans 1.15, this is what Paul says. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now here's the deal. Paul had never been to Rome as, as he wrote this letter, but he was eager to preach the gospel to them. And so since he, he was not there, had not been there, and he didn't know when he was coming, what's the next best thing than being there to preach the gospel? Well, well not, why not write a letter and share the gospel with them? And so the book of Romans here, many have called it the gospel according to Paul. In many ways, the book of Romans is, is laid out as the gospel. And we see this. Look at verse 16. He continues on. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then we go to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. Here's the main structure to the book of Romans. The, the book of Romans is the gospel. But what does God do? What does Paul do before he shares the good news, the gospel? He goes back and he talks about sin. And he talks about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed. What is the wrath of God? I mean, the wrath of God is God's hatred towards sin. But but why, why does God hate sin? What's going on here? I want to continue reading here. We're going to pick up here in verse 21 of chapter 1. Paul says, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see what's going on here? They're exchanging the glory for God and they're creating things and they are worshiping them. Now, Paul makes this clear. Look at verse 24. He continues on. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, get this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You see, at the heart of sin is a failure to worship God rightly. Have you thought about that when you think of worship? Paul cast this whole framework of Romans in light of worship. Hey, this is something you need to get today. You were created for worship. Worship isn't just something that happens when the band is playing or on Sunday mornings. What we're seeing here, it's not a question of 
are you worshiping? You always worship. Right now, you are worshiping. So it's not a question of are you worshiping, it's the question of who or what you are worshiping. And Paul makes that clear here in Romans 1. Because what's going on in sin and what he's speaking about here is that we failed to worship the creature and rather we're worshiping, we failed to worship the creator, now we're worshiping creation. And that is at the heart of idolatry. So we're seeing, we're learning some cool things here about the gospel and as it relates to worship. Now let me just back up for a second. Paul said, I wanted to share the gospel with you. He goes and he talks about worship. You're failing to worship God the way you should. And so God's wrath is revealed. If we were to continue through Romans chapter one and on into chapter two, it would say this, that no one will be exempt from the wrath of God. Paul says that we are all storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's the deal. None of us will escape the wrath and judgment of God. And we're all guilty. Every single one of us. And I'm including myself. I am a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. The hatred, the punishment of God toward my failure to worship Him rightly. That's the bad news this morning. Paul says in Romans 3, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look, there's no distinction. Every single one of us, whether your your financial, economic status, your generational background, there's no distinction. We all fall short of the glory of God. But there's a cool thing that happens in Romans 3. Flip over to Romans 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 21. In Romans 3, verse 21, we start to see a glimpse of the gospel. In verse 21 of Romans 3, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Jump on down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the mercy of God here? By grace. This is not something you've earned. It is unearned. It is a gift. And it says it's found in the redemption. We were slaves to sin and through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we have been made free. Continues on, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What is a propitiation? Here's what he means here. The word propitiation means that Jesus is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Or we may say the wrath-exhausting sacrifice. You've got this wrath. The picture a cup. All of your sin, your failure to worship God the way you should is filling up a cup. And, and, and this is, you're storing up wrath. And this cup of wrath one day is going to be poured out on you at the day of wrath, judgment. But here's what Jesus does. Jesus comes on the scene. And, and what do we learn about Jesus' worship? He always worshiped God rightly. He never sinned. And what he does is he lives a perfect life. And when he's in the garden praying, 
Do you remember him saying, Father, take this cup from me. Jesus knew the cup of wrath. We could go through Old Testament imagery. The cup referred to the wrath of God. He knew on the cross that he was about to drink every last drop of the cup of of God's wrath for millions of sinners. God, if there's another way except for me drinking the cup, but he says, not my will, your will be done. Do you know what Jesus does on the cross? On the cross, yes, it was physical agony. Nails in his hand, thorn on his head, a pierce, he's piercing his side, nails in his feet. That was painful. But the greatest pain on the cross was that Jesus, who had never tasted the guilt of sin, drank every last drop of the cup. And you know whose wrath it was? It was ours. It was my sin. It was your sin. And he willingly drank it. That's the gospel. It is grace. It is mercy. It is love. As we continue through Romans, we come to Romans 5 where Paul says, but God demonstrates his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died. He was a propitiation. He was the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And hey, by the way, all you did was contribute the wrath, the sin. We continue through Romans. We see in Romans 10, flip on over to Romans 10 now with me. Hey, we're getting closer to Romans 12. Romans 10, verse 9. In Romans 10, 9, Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We come to Romans 10 and we find the good news that there's no distinction. That if you're here today, the bad news is that you're a sinner and there's no way that you will escape the wrath of God. But the good news is, is that the cross of Jesus is available and sufficient for all. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved today? You you can do that right now. You don't need to wait till later in the service. If right now you have been open to see your sin and your need for a Savior, a wrath-bearing sacrifice, Jesus is the one. You call upon Him confessing your sin, believing in your heart, trusting putting all of your hope in him and start following him. Call upon him now. He is the only means. And so when we come to Romans 12, the first few words here are loaded. 
I appeal to you, verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. In, in those few words, Paul has crammed Romans 1 through 11. It's all crammed in there. And he's basically saying, everything I've just told you about sin and wrath and justification and redemption and propitiation, in view of all of that, worship. Why should I worship? You see, I could set up a bunch of rules to get right behavior. And you know what would happen? It would be pharisaical worship. That's what it was for them. A bunch of rules that had no heart. But here, here's the thing that you need to get today. You don't worship God to earn his favor. You worship him because you've already been accepted. You have come to embrace the mercy of God in the gospel. You, and also get this, you don't worship God grudgingly. Man, I've got to worship God now. You see what the gospel does? My heart is exploding with joy because I have no hope apart from Jesus. And so our worship is not a grudge. It's not a resentful worship. It is a joyful worship. I could say with John Piper who says, worship is the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. That's what we're doing when we worship. It is motivated by joy. So what we see here is that the gospel is the grounds for worship. We worship and it is a response to the gospel. Paul knew that if your heart was gripped by the gospel, you couldn't but help have a life that was transformed by it. So truth number one, worship is a response. Why do we worship? We worship because of the gospel we look back at the once-for-all sacrifice that was made in Christ. Truth number two that I want us to see today. Not only is worship a response to the gospel, but the gospel demands complete devotion. Going back to our text here, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is worship? Worship is complete devotion. This idea of sacrifice would have been very familiar to any Christian context. You think of the Old Testament. When we think of the Old Testament, what do we think of? We think of the temple and we think of that was the place of worship. That's where you would have brought a sacrifice. A lamb on the day of atonement would have been sacrificed. We think of the Passover that was observed and the sacrifices that took place at the temple. So it made na natural that Paul would take this idea of Old Testament sacrifice and yet use a New Testament context for it. So this picture, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Look, we're no longer slaughtering lambs and, and, and animals aren't being killed. Why? Because Jesus, the lamb of God, go back and listen to last week's sermon, has appeared. And he has been and is the once for all sacrifice. He has done away with the Old Testament sacrificial system. The purpose of the Old Testament was to point to him. It is fulfilled. He has come. So now we don't offer sacrifices in, in that way. What's the only thing we can offer? You see, what happens here is, is Paul now turns to what we can give to actually God demanding the giver. Man, this is probably going to start getting a little personal because what does he say here? Present your 
bodies as a living sacrifice. Man, let's be honest. And it's really cool if we can just call worship singing. Hey, I can come and sing, I can give my offering, and then I can be done with it. But that's not how Paul defines worship here. Paul says, here's worship. Here's what the gospel demands, your life. It demands everything. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of what Jesus said in the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 9, look at what, um, look at what Jesus says. He says, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the call of the gospel. To follow Jesus, we take up our cross. And you know what? This Romans 12, 1 and 2, that Luke 9, that's not for the super Christian. This is for all. This is what the gospel demands for who wants to follow Jesus. I'll say this. The gospel will cost you everything. But do you know what the cost is if you don't worship God? You will lose your soul. So I'll be honest with you. I mean, if today you want to take up and follow Jesus, he demands everything. He, he's not just with, concerned with Sunday morning. He's, he's as much concerned with Monday through Saturday as he wants your Sunday. But I will say this, if you reject that and go another way, it will cost you much more. It will cost you your whole soul. The cool thing here is that when God saves us by the gospel, that he is for your joy and my joy. This, there is great joy and delight in this, in, in worship. So let me just ask a question. How does our body become a sacrifice? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I love what John Chrysostom says here. Look what he says here. He says, let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let the, thy tongue speak nothing filthily, and it hath become an offering. Let thine hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a burnt offering. I want you to just picture here. Offer, present your body as a living sacrifice. When, when we fail to worship God, when we sin, what are we doing? We're using our bodies in a way that doesn't make much of Him. So I'm taking my hand and I'm hitting somebody in the face. I'm taking my eyes and I'm looking lustfully at somebody. I'm using my mouth and my tongue to curse and to lie. You get the picture here? Sin is about using our bodies in a way that does not worship and make much of God. So now what might it look like to present my body as a living sacrifice? Well, here's the deal. If, if it's the body that I'm to offer to God and that's what worship, well then does my body just exist on Sunday morning? See, here's the deal. If, if we define worship as presenting your body, well then everything you do is worship. What you do at work on Monday morning is worship. It may not be worshiping God, but it is worship. What you do on the computer at night, watching on TV, out at that club or whatever, that's worship. You're presenting your body and you're either making much of God or you're even making much of yourself. But you always worship. So let me ask you this. Are you offering your life in complete devotion to God? What areas of your life have you said, God, that's off limits? 
What areas of your body are saying, yeah, God, I'll, I'll, I'll use my mouth on Sunday mornings to worship you, but I'm not going to use my hands Monday through Saturday. What have you said, God, that's off limits? See, if we were to continue in our study of Romans, do you know what we'd see in the next three chapters? Paul's actually going to lay out, how do you offer your bodies a living sacrifice? He's going to start and he's going to talk about the first thing. How do you live in the community of the church? Offer your spiritual gifts. He's going to go and he's going to talk about how do you love your neighbor? How do you love your enemies? What about sexual immorality? What about the government? Paying taxes? He's going to get very practical. And what you see through the rest of Romans is that worship demands everything. So what is worship? Let me give you a few verses and then I want to give you a definition. Man, what is worship? This is this is what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. He's highlighting that even eating and drinking is worship. What about Colossians 3, 17, where he says, in whatever you do, in word, if it's something you say or if it's something you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what is worship? Here's a definition of worship from David Peterson. He says this, fundamentally, then worship in the New Testament means believing the gospel and responding with one's whole life and being to the person and work of God's Son and the power of the Spirit. That's worship. It is a response and it demands our whole life. So what then is not worship? It's not confined to space and time and it's much larger than the songs we sing on Sunday. So worship is a response to the gospel. Second truth, the gospel demands complete devotion. Third truth, and we're wrapping up. Complete devotion is the result of gospel transformation. Complete devotion is the result of gospel transformation. You're probably sitting here and you've probably run this question by your head right now because what's happened? You're probably kind of evaluating your life and, and some of these areas are popping up. Yep, I'm not worshiping God and my, with my boyfriend and girlfriend. I'm not worshiping God in my marriage. I'm not worshiping God at work. I'm not worshiping God in the way I play basketball. I'm just giving you examples. You're probably, and you're like, man, how do I get to the place where I have a life that's completely devoted? Well, that's, that's what Paul tells us in chapter 12, verse 2. So let's look at verse 2. What does he say? This is how you get there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's explicit now, right? The greatest hindrance to your worship is not how well Micah sings on Sunday morning and how well he plays. The greatest hindrance to your worship is what's going on inside your own heart. By the renewal of your mind. You know what? Let's jog back real quick to Romans 1. We're going to go back there one more time. I promise I won't go all the way through the book this time though. Romans 1. Go with me to verse 21. Romans 1, verse 21. Romans 1, 21. This is what Paul says. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became what? Futile in their thinking. What I want you to see here is what role does the mind 
play in gospel transformation. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise and they became fools. Jump on down to verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Do you see what's going on here? The battle for sin and the battle for worship is a battle of the mind and it is a battle of truth versus lies. And what do you do with truth and lies? You believe them or not? Now, I'm going to give you the best illustration I know to help you get this. Eve in the Garden of Eden. What does God tell her? Well, he tells Adam, which who then told Eve. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you will what? Die. Okay, now there's this conversation in Genesis 3 with the serpent. And what does the serpent say? Eve! Are you going to believe God? That's not what he says. But I mean, that's, that's what he's implying. And what does he say? You will not die. What do we have here? We have the truth and we have the lie. And Eve is in the middle, and what's at stake? Who's she going to believe? Gospel transformation is about renewing your mind. Every single time you sin, it is a battle of the mind of believing and embracing the promises of God or believing the lies of the world, sin, and Satan. Every single time. You, you could, you, after that, you could come and say, John, here's my sin. You tell me, what's the lie? And in every sin, there is a lie, a failure to believe and trust in God. That's what Eve did. She basically rejected the truth, and she thought she was wise. She thought she knew better than God. She didn't say this, but in actuality, she was saying, God, you're a liar. God, God, I know you said if I eat of it, I'll die, but I promise you, I won't. It's arrogance, right? You know what? We do the same thing. God, I know you've said I'm not supposed to do this, but I promise you, it's really okay. It's okay if I say those things. It's okay if I do those things in this relationship. It's okay if I, if I, if I lie a little bit here. We do the very same thing that Eve does. It is rejecting the truth of God. And you know at the heart of, of our rejection of God, and many times it's rejecting the character of God. And that's what Satan wanted to get out. Hey, man, God's keeping you from all of this great joy. It is a battle of the mind. Think about when you blew it last. It may have been this morning. It was probably a battle going on in your mind. You knew the truth. You knew what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Gospel transformation is about the mind. Now, what is the key? For time's sake, I've got to fly through this. But the key is found in Romans 8. I'm just, you can turn, we'll just turn there real quick. Romans 8 is the key here. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Do you get it? 
He continues on. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The key to your gospel transformation and the renewal of your mind is the setting of your mind on the things of the spirit. What are the things of the spirit? The things of the spirit are the truth of God revealed in the scriptures. The sword of the spirit is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, Hebrews 4. The Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. We could draw through and show the connection between the Spirit and the Word. The way you will be renewed and the way you will produce a life of complete devotion is as you take up the Word of God, as you read it and get this, underline this, bold this, it's believe it. It does you no good just to read and read and read and put it down if you don't believe it. Because at the heart of transformation is taking God for who he is and believing what he says. When you read the Bible, do you believe it? There is gospel transforming power when you take up the word, you meditate on it, and you believe it. And it changes your life. I've never met anyone who had a life completely devoted to God where the word of God did not play a significant role in their life. And for most people that are struggling with sin in their life, one of the first questions I'm going to ask them is, tell me, have you, have you been pursuing God in his word? And the answer most likely is going to be no. There's a direct correlation. Hey, the psalmist said it. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. So the gospel is not only the grounds for worship, the gospel is the very means that transforms and renews our mind. And what is the result? We see real quickly in Romans 12 too. He says in Romans 12 then, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It is through us offering our lives in complete devotion that God reveals his will to us. You're a college student here, and you know, man, what is the will of God for my life? I want to say, go worship God. Completely devote your life to God. Pursue Him in His Word, and I guarantee you, He's going to reveal it to you. So as we wrap up, what implication does this have for corporate worship? I've got four things I want to share with you. The first one is this, implications for worship. Private worship does not excuse you from public worship. Look, you need more than a podcast and speakers. You need a pastor in a church. Matt Chandler just said that this past week. Now, the problem is that if you're here today, you're probably not the one that needed to hear that statement there. But just because you worship God privately does not exclude you from public worship. Because if we're to go on in Romans 12, verse 3, he's going to immediately talk about the body, a local body. Get in and serve. So my plea to you and challenge you is, hey, if you're completely devoted to God, what, how is that reflected in your corporate worship attendance? Maybe for some of you, a greater pursuit of worship would be, I'm going I'm to devote myself to being in a local church, in a community, worshiping corporately. Second thing I want to share with you, public worship does not excuse you from private worship. Just because you come and worship corporately today doesn't mean you're set for another week. You know what A.W. Tozer said? He said, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship Him on on one day a week. 
Third thing, corporate worship is a picture of heavenly worship. It is to be a picture of heavenly worship. You look, everybody is welcome here. So I'll just make a little side note here. We love the parachurch organization, but you need more than your campus ministry. Because the local church here is all diversity, all people, all age groups, anyone, everyone is welcome. This is the church. Fourth thing I want to share with you. Corporate worship helps to foster individual worship. What we do on Sundays is to foster, is so that to help you renew your mind, so that you will be completely devoted to God in every aspect of your work. So how can we best do this? What does this look like then for what we do on Sunday morning? There are five things that we do on Sunday. I'm just rolling through these. The first one is this. We read the gospel. Gospel-driven worship individually and corporately. Hey, we read the gospel. We make it a priority. The, the word of God, the good news of God's story and what he's doing for us, we prioritize reading it every Sunday. Until I return, devote yourselves to the reading of Scripture, Paul said. Second thing, we preach the gospel. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. What we're doing today, the goal is so that it would help foster individual worship in your life. You need Sunday mornings to help you pursue this. Third one, we pray the gospel. And I'll just say this, preaching is as much as worship as singing. You usually say, oh, the worship was great. Well, that includes the preaching. Everything we do is worship. Hey, we pray the gospel. We prioritize every Sunday. We're going to pray. It is rooted in the gospel. We may use acts as a paradigm. We want to adore. We want to pray. We want to confess. We want to give thanks. We want to ask God supplication. We pray the gospel. Fourth thing, we sing the gospel. You may wonder, hey, why don't you sing that song on Sundays? Or why do you sing the songs we do? The evaluation key for us is we want to know, does this song magnify the greatness of God displayed in the gospel? So in everything we do on Sundays, it is gospel-driven. It is not about entertainment. It is so that we would treasure God and the gospel. We sing the gospel. And then fifth, we see the gospel. Ever thought about the role of the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper? The ordinances are drama. It is, it is a visual picture and presentation of the gospel. The Jesus, last thing he says to his disciples in Matthew, he says, I want you to go make disciples baptizing. Baptism is the going public of what's going on in your heart. And I'll just be honest with you. I mean, for some of you today, maybe, this, maybe what God is leading you to do and completely devoting yourself to God is to go public and to let everybody know Jesus is my Lord and Savior and I'm going to get baptized. If you've never been baptized after conversion, because it is a public picture of what's already happened, if it hasn't happened in the heart, baptism is after conversion. It is going public of what's already happened. If you haven't been baptized by immersion like Jesus, man, hey, we're having a baptism service in October. We've already got some people lined up. Why don't you join? And you're, you can take that connection card this way and say, you know what? I want to completely devote myself to God. I need to get baptized and I want to go public. I want people to know. I want to follow an example of Christ. You can let us know on that connection. You can tell Tanner and I after the service. Maybe that's what some of you need to do. You need to repent of your shyness or whatever that is. And just follow Jesus and say, he is all that matters. But 
Baptism is a picture of the gospel. I have been changed. I'm going, I've been buried in the, in the likeness of Christ. I've died to sin. I've been raised to new life. And I want everybody to know that. And then the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is another visible way that we see the gospel. Jesus said, this bread was broken. It's my body. This cup is the blood of the new covenant. It was shed for you. It's a way that we commemorate, we see it, we embrace it. And so here's how we're going we're gonna to end this time. We're actually going to enter into the Lord's Supper. Now you can go ahead and ask our ushers to come forward and be preparing that. Hey, we're going to see that today. They're going to come up here in a second. They're going to get this ready. They're going to be standing down front. Karen, you can come on and, and slide on up here as, as well. They're going to hold the bread and the and, and the juice here that represent the body and blood of Christ. Let me just encourage you here. This is a picture of the gospel. This cup I was telling you about, the blood is a picture of the cup of wrath. Jesus' blood was poured out and shed for you. When we come up and partake, we're saying, Jesus, thank you for what you have done for me in the gospel. We're commemorating that. Look, we do it in community. We don't do this alone. It's also celebrating our commitment to one another. Hey, we do life together. So here's what's going to happen. After I pray in a second, man, as the Lord leads, and I want to encourage you, man, there needs to probably be some response, some praying, some seeking God. Maybe what he's revealing, these areas in your life that you're not worshiping him. As, you, as God leads, walk down the center aisle here. You're going to grab a piece of the bread. They're going to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. You're going to dip it into the cup, and then you're going to partake, and then you can go back to your seat. But let me encourage you, because this is a picture of the gospel, the Bible says that only those who have embraced Jesus and treasured him should partake. And this isn't in any way to exclude anybody, but it would be blaspheme to come and take the body and blood and yet not honor him with your life. So Paul says, look, you need to examine your lives. What's going on? Is Jesus really who you say he is and partaking? So, hey, if you're here and you're kind of just searching and figuring out who this Jesus thing is, hey, it's okay if you just remain in your seat and pray. And I will challenge you, as we receive the bread and the juice, you receive Christ. Call upon him today. Take him as we worship. So I'm going to pray and then we will move forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us. Your mercy is overwhelming. God, I pray you would grip our hearts with this good news. God, would you reveal sin in our life, errors that we have failed to worship you rightly. God, we pray that you would transform us to be completely devoted followers of you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.